Welcome to everybody who is out there celebrating with us at home. Happy Resurrection Sunday. And just so you know, he is not here. He is risen. Amen. Oh, man. This is something that um, I think all Christians look forward to for the whole spring. Not only does it mark uh, spring, to me in my mind when I think of Easter, I think of spring. Um, but it's the beginning of so many things. It's the beginning of so many things, and, and it's just a new life and a rebirth. And I know when you look outside and you see, for those of us here in Colorado, you see the snowstorm, you hear of quarantines and things that are going on, and it's hard to look at this as anything new. But this marks, this weekend, this day specifically, marks the day when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ triumphed over the grave and gave us the greatest gift that could ever be given to mankind. And that's what we come together to celebrate today. So no matter where you are, no matter what's going on, let's just lift up a praise to him. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you. Praise you today. Praise you every day for what you have done for us. And we celebrate that. And it's in your name we come together as a body and we say amen. Mm. Some of you are joining us for the first time ever. Um, everybody's joining us online. This is our first online-only Easter service. Churches all over the world are doing this, and many of us have had to scramble. Some were better prepared than others because they had been doing online services. Um, but many churches, especially the smaller ones like us, we are scrambling to try and put this together but here's what I know. Churches all over the world are doing the same thing. And that is a bonding, a community, of fellowship of believers worldwide that maybe we haven't had before because we're all kind of doing our own thing, focusing on Jesus, yes. But now we're all doing it in the same way. And I have messages and contacts with pastors all over the world who are dealing with the same things we are. How do we bring this gospel message of Jesus Christ? How do we celebrate this wondrous day and do it online, virtually only with no live audience? It's a difficult thing to do, but here's what I know, is that God is going to be exalted through this. Jesus Christ is going to be praised through this. And this is an amazing thing for us to have the opportunity to come together worldwide and do this. Doesn't matter if you're a church of three people. It doesn't matter if you're a church of 3,000. We are all celebrating the same thing in the same way today. And I think that's something just to be so thankful for. So before we get started, some of you, we handed out a whole bunch of um, Easter in a box kits this week. I got the blessing of being able, as Pastor Gabe said, to, to drive around and deliver some, to hand out some here in those boxes. If you got one of those, are some small communion cups. We're going to take communion together corporately towards the end of the message. If you uh, didn't get one of those, you're joining us from somewhere else, grab some communion elements. It can be anything you want. It could be orange juice and bagels. The elements are not particular. It can be whatever you have. It's what's in your heart. And we're going to walk through that a little bit later. But grab some of that. Prepare yourself right now. Also, this is going to be an interactive service. I'm going to ask you to look at your Bibles. So if you don't have a Bible handy, grab one. We're going to give you just a few seconds to do that. Jeremy Q.
All right, that's probably enough. Hopefully you've got yours. If not, you can keep scrambling around. I can't see you, so I'm just going to assume that everybody has theirs and we're doing this. I look around at this empty church building, as many pastors are right now uh, all over the world. They're looking at these beautiful buildings that we have, these beautiful places that we have made for the fellowship of the body to come together um, and just celebrate him as one. And we see that they're empty. And all this thing that we've put so much of our effort and so much of our focus into, I remember in years past, uh, vacuuming again and again and polishing things and cleaning chairs and, and doing all these things that we do, preparing for Easter. But you know what's important? is just like the people, he is not here. He is risen. We have an image of an empty tomb. I hope you're looking at that right now. This is what the tomb looked like. The place can't contain him. He is much bigger than that. And that empty tomb is what we celebrate here together today. And our series leading up to this wonderful celebration that we get to have together has been uh, called Prophecies and Promises. And it's all about Old Testament scripture that foretells of a coming Messiah, either of our need for a Messiah or of God's plan, God's redemptive plan, as it has unveiled all the way through the first verse in Genesis, his redemptive plan. And it's always been there. In times like this when there's nothing that we can count on, there's nothing that is safe and secure and the same and unchanging, we have one thing that is, and that is our Lord. Our God is good, and he gave his son, Jesus Christ, for us to be our rock. And it's on that that we can stand, and it doesn't matter what is swirling around us as a nation. We can stand on that rock firm and secure in the knowledge that every promise God has ever given to his people was either fulfilled in Jesus or it is yet to be fulfilled in Jesus. And that, to me, is cause to celebrate. So when we talk about prophecies and promises as far as the name of the series, talking about the prophetic, I was talking to my staff. I remember clearly a staff meeting that we had here at the church way back in January where I said, I don't want Easter this year to look the same as it has in previous years. I remember clearly saying that. And the other morning I woke up and I thought that old saying, be careful what you hope for, was ringing in my head. I think there are probably many pastors who at the beginning of the year started their 2020 vision series. I know many of my friends did. And I chose not to do that and it turns out that was prophetic because who but God could have foreseen the way things were going to unfold right now. So I told my staff that, be careful what you hope for is what resonates in my mind. But then immediately the Holy Spirit speaks to me and says, be careful what you hope for, yes, unless that hope is in Christ. If that hope is in Christ, then our hope is in the right place. And I want to talk about that for just a moment. Again, let's go back to Old Testament scripture. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. We do have that on screen. Read along with me. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Now that word, depending on your translation, because they're all slightly different, your version might either say those who wait for the Lord or those who hope 
for the Lord or those who hope on the Lord. There's some different variations there. They all translate back to the same Hebrew word, and that Hebrew word is kavah. Okay, kavah means in its essence, it means to expectantly wait for. To expectantly wait for. The image there that they draw, in fact, where this word is drawn from, is that of a bowstring under tension. Picture, you pull back the string of a bow. When you're fully pulled back, you're cocked and you're ready to go, that string is not doing anything at the moment, but it is under tension. And it is expecting to be released. We expect all that energy when we let go Let that arrow fly. That energy is released. That is that feeling of expectancy. So those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. What that means, it's not a passive process. So in other words, if you are there this morning, wherever you are, if you're joining us and you are unsure of what the future holds, you're unsure of even what tomorrow holds, Is my job going to be there? Is my family going to be healthy? Am I going to be healthy? When are we getting back to church? There's all these things that are going on. And if you are unsure of all those things, as most of us are, but you're forging ahead anyway, you get up every morning, you do what you have to do, and we move forward. We expect the sun will rise tomorrow. We expect that at some point things will get back to, not normal, I think better than normal, but if you're in that place because you're expecting that God is good, then you're in the right place. Then this message and that scripture, in fact, is for you. You're getting up every day. You're waiting for the Lord. You are expectantly, you are assured of the fact that he is good. And although you can't see it and you don't know when it's going to happen, you know that it will. We have this hope in him. God will give us everything that we need to navigate this and to get through it because he is good. This is why it's so important for us to understand when we talk about Jesus that he is not just a character in the New Testament, that he has been there all along. He has been the the central focus, the point of all of Scripture. The central focus is God's redemptive plan through his son, Jesus Christ. And this is what we celebrate today here with the resurrection, his triumph over the grave. So as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Easter, it's tempting to think that that Jesus' uh, story, that his story ends with the resurrection, okay? He's born, he lives his life, he's crucified, and he is resurrected, the end. You would be tempted to think that, and many people do. The resurrection is the end of the story, but in fact, um, there is so much more. You'd be justified in thinking, though, that that's how the story goes, that it basically ends with the resurrection, because the Apostle Paul himself said when he was teaching, he said, I resolved to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. So the question then, the first of our interactive part of this of this message is, why did Paul say that? Why, when there's so much depth around Christ's teaching, there's so many things that he taught on, there's so many things that his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection 
facilitated or provided for us, blessed us with, why did he say that when there's so much more? I think it's because the entire gospel message, the entire good news gospel message of Jesus Christ is wrapped up in the events of the resurrection. And we're going to talk about that. In fact, in keeping with our idea of prophecies from the Old Testament, we're going to go all the way back. And we're going to look at how God began to unveil this redemptive plan to his people. Okay, We're going to go all the way back to when the Hebrew people were in captivity in Egypt. Let's go all the way back there. Now, they had been enslaved in captivity in Egypt for generations, for generations. This was pretty much their way of life. Now, they had remembered or been told about the covenant that God made with Abraham, that they would be his chosen people. Okay, so they might have, might have felt chosen, but it'd be hard to feel chosen when you're enslaved and you have been for generations. In fact, they may not have even known about that because the only way, Scripture didn't exist at that point. Remember, the Scripture wasn't given to Moses until much later on Sinai. So how would they have even known about that? Well, they might have known because Joseph had been risen to the point of of being in charge or being second in charge of Egypt, and he would have known the story about his ancestors, and he would have probably relayed that. So if they had it at all, if they were even aware of that, it would have been through this oral tradition that probably began with Joseph handing it out to them. So that's most likely how they would have known. So as a quick reminder, the the covenant that God made with Abraham. Now, it's called the Abrahamic or Abraham, Abraham's covenant. There's a few different ones, but I want to remind you of one. I'm just going to read this one to you. This is Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. So they knew that they were chosen, but man, it probably didn't feel like it. Their everyday lives surely didn't reflect any any blessing and any fact that they were chosen or special. So let's fast forward now. A few hundred years, even from that point, we still find the, the people of Israel, the Hebrews, we find them enslaved in Egypt still, okay? God had brought nine separate plagues upon Egypt, and this was all done to show Pharaoh how little power he really had and convince him to release God's chosen people. Pharaoh, of course, as we know, the story goes, he was resistant and he He defiantly said no. He thought of himself as a God. So he certainly wasn't going to bow to any of these things. Now, there's one last plague to come. One more. And this one is significant. Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Follow along with me at home if you've got it. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, 
On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. This isn't one lamb being done corporately for everyone. Every single Hebrew household was to take its own lamb. Now, that's really significant. Let me try and explain why. The people of Israel were not used to a system of sacrifice for sin. It had been done a couple times, okay? A few times, in fact, if you go all the way back to Genesis, innocent animals were sacrificed to make skins to cover Adam and Eve's sinfulness as they saw it. That's one example. Noah sacrificed some animals. Abram sacrificed. So we do see it happening a couple times, but not corporately. So again, and these people would not have been aware of those things. This would have been a new experience for them. God wouldn't give the instruction for this whole sacrificial system until, until later. And then at that point, they would understand. But right here, they don't. God is speaking this to, to Moses. Exodus 12, 5. We have that one on screen. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Okay, this is the sacrificial lamb that is a type or a, or a precursor or an example of Christ to come. Without fault, without blemish. Then moving on, Exodus 12, 7. I'll just read this one for you. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Again, they had no real precedent for this. They're being told, or Moses at this point is being told to do these things. This is not something that's been done before. So he's trying to follow along by instruction, by faith. He is following God's instruction, absolutely, but none of this would have made sense to him. Exodus 12, 11, we have this on screen. Now, you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. What that means is ready to go. You shall be dressed. We would say your suitcase is packed, everything ready to go. He's telling them, be ready to go, and you eat it in haste. Then this last part, it is the Lord's Passover. Now, this is the first time that the word Passover is used. This wasn't a holiday they had been celebrating for generations. This is the first time they would have heard the word Passover. And it probably wouldn't have meant an awful lot to them. In Hebrew, the word is Pesach. The word just wouldn't have been significant to Moses yet. Although God speaks to him, it is the Lord's Passover. Been extremely significant because of that. But the word itself wouldn't have really resonated with him. And then God goes on to tell Moses this. This is the reason to do this. Exodus 12, 12 and 13. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. In other words, the judgment against the enemies of God would pass over those who were covered by the blood 
of the sacrificed lamb. Now, God had given these instructions to Moses. Now it's Moses and Aaron. It's their job to go and deliver these instructions to the people. Can you imagine that task? So he says this, Exodus 12, verses 23 to 25. You can follow along at home. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. Listen to the rest of this. Verse 24, And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the God which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall observe this right. When I opened up this message and I talked about that expectant hope from Isaiah 40, 31, this is what that looks like. This hasn't even happened yet. This isn't something they had seen happen time and time again, and they went, okay, that's, that's how that works. They would have had no idea, no context for understanding what was about to happen. But after telling them to put the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel, I think we do have a, an image of that. Throw that image up if you haven't already. This is what it looked like. The family would get together. Remember, each family would slaughter a goat, and they would put the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel. But they're told in verses 24 and 25, they are told to mark this day, to celebrate it. It hadn't even happened yet. And they're being told expectantly, God is about to do something amazing, and you're going to want to mark this, and you're going to celebrate it. It hasn't even been fulfilled yet. You can take that image down. So the question then that raises in my mind immediately when I think about that, do you ever wonder why God asked them to mark their doorposts? Surely God knew where the Hebrews lived. God didn't have Google, but I think he had something better. He knew where they lived. He knew who was a Hebrew and who wasn't. So why is he asking them to mark their doorposts. I think the question should be, did they know who they were? God knew who they were. Did they understand who they were? I think this is why they did it. They had been in this culture for so long that they had begun to assimilate to this Egyptian culture. They had begun to uh, worship their idols, had begun, had begun to become more and more Egyptian in their ways and in their thinking, even though they were clearly second class, they were an enslaved society. But they had begun to assimilate. The first nine plagues had been done simply while they stood by. They didn't have to actively participate. They didn't have to do anything. These plagues just happened. And they weren't effective in getting Pharaoh to this point to change his mind and release them. But this one would require their participation. In fact, this one would require an overt act of faith on their part to not only believe what God had spoken to Moses and what Moses had relayed to them, but to act on it. And did they trust him or not? See, it was a bigger thing than just, well, worst case scenario of of, I'm going to have to clean up my doorposts. It was more than that. These sheep, 
these perfect lambs and goats that they slaughtered didn't belong to them. Okay, they were caretakers of them, but being an enslaved society, every single thing, they had no property rights. Nothing that they owned belonged to them. It belonged to their Egyptian masters. So to take a lamb, not only just any lamb, not the cripples or the broken ones, but the perfect, spotless, blemish-free lambs, and sacrifice them, one per household. If this didn't work, they were dead, without a doubt. If God doesn't show up, they would be put to death immediately for their actions. They had to have faith beyond anything they had ever had to show before in order to do this. Now, we know that the Hebrews, they do as instructed. God unleashes the plagues on Egypt, the angel of death, does pass over their homes, sparing them, so much so to the point that Pharaoh practically begs them to leave. Begs them to leave, and this is when the exodus begins. Now, this is the origin of the Passover celebration, and really our first glimpse, if you will, of Jesus as our Passover lamb. In other words, this perfect, unblemished life, innocent life, given to save the sinful many in need of deliverance. This is our very first glimpse of that. Now, we fast forward about 1,500 years or so, and we find Jesus. In fact, in this scripture I'm about to share with you, we find Jesus walking back. He's basically returning from his 40 days in the wilderness that he spent being tempted by the devil. And he's walking back, and as he is walking back, he comes upon John the Baptist. John the Baptist had his own disciples, his own followers at that time. And so he comes upon them, and as John the Baptist looks up and sees Jesus approaching, John the Baptist says this, John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This isn't something he had always called him. This wasn't a pet name or anything. This was a brand new thing that God had re- revealed to John the Baptist. And he, and he announces, this is the lamb. This is the first time we've ever seen that reference. They wouldn't see it again for a while. So they knew the reference going back to Exodus at this time. In Jesus' time, they would have known about the Passover. In fact, they were regularly celebrating Passover, so they understood the reference. But when he points to Jesus and says, behold, this man is the lamb, that would have been something new for them. I'm not even sure that John the Baptist understood the depth of what he was saying. His whole purpose was to be a herald, a a forerunner to announce the coming Messiah. But even when that Messiah came, even when the Holy Spirit gave John the Baptist, this is the Lamb of God, he still had some doubts. We know that because later on when John the Baptist is in prison, he sends some people to Jesus saying, okay, one more time, are you the one or is there someone else? Even he didn't quite grasp the significance of the things that he was saying. So throughout the next three years of ministry of of Jesus on earth, as Jesus was traveling around, performing miracles, making disciples, doing the things that he was doing, 
he does not refer to himself as the Lamb of God. In fact, we don't see that used again until much, much later, very extensively in Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The phrase Lamb of God is used over and over again. Now, throughout this time, (coughs) Andrew and John, two of Jesus' disciples, they were there when John the Baptist announced that Jesus was the Lamb of God, when he called him that. Did they remember it? Did they connect the dots? Possibly not. John the Baptist wasn't really known for being uh, someone easy to listen to. He looked kind of crazy. So maybe they just dismissed it as kind of the ramblings of a, of a crazy man. Then we go ahead. We move forward in time. Jesus is joining his disciples for the Passover feast. I want to explain this. This is Mark chapter 14, verse 12. You can follow along. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Okay, so they were going to get together. Remember, they were Jewish. They weren't Christians at this point. They considered Jesus to be the Jewish Messiah, the one they'd all been waiting for. So they were Jewish by culture, Jewish by birth, and they were getting ready to celebrate the Passover feast together. This is where we are. Luke twenty-two fourteen to 16, we have that one on screen. When the hour had come... Jesus had reclined at the table with his apostles. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before my suffering. For I tell you that I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now keep in mind, they are all sharing this this meal with Christ. And he says these things. They clearly did not, even then, weren't putting the pieces together. They really didn't grasp the significance of this situation. And how do we know that? Because their response, they start arguing with each other on who's the best? Who's the greatest disciple? So they start arguing. And at some point, I I picture, Scripture doesn't say this, Jesus getting disgusted with that and saying, you guys argue among yourselves. I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave the walls of the city, and I'm going to go to the garden. And I'm going to relax in the garden. So he leaves. The disciples do go with him. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, now this is all in the evening. Okay, Passover started at sundown. They ate the Passover meal together. Jesus leaves with his disciples to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, that evening, while Jesus is relaxing in the garden, he is arrested. That's a whole other sermon for a whole other day. But he's arrested at that point. He is taken back into the city, back into the walls of the city, and he is thrown in jail to await trial first thing in the morning. Now, Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. in the morning, which means he had been arrested the night before, He had been taken, thrown in jail. He had been woken up in the morning. He had been brought to trial, found guilty, cross on his back, walked the Via Dolorosa. All those things that we see in Scripture that happened on the way, put on the cross and crucified all by 9 a.m. in the morning. 
I hope you're looking at this mo- of the image of Jesus on the cross right here. Mark chapter 15, verses 25-26 says, It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. Now, why are these times so important? All throughout Scripture, we see all these things happen, and rarely do we see these time frames really laid out hour to hour, and what time of day was it? It's important to know. As I mentioned before, the Hebrew calendar, the Hebrew day begins at sunset and goes to the following sunset. Okay, we don't, it doesn't go to midnight like ours does. It goes from sunset to sunset. So Passover began on sunset the day that Jesus ate with his disciples. And Passover ended then the following day at sunset. Why is that significant? Are you connecting the dots here? Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, the lamb of God, was given for us in sacrifice for us to deliver us from our sin on Passover. Now this is the point where many, many Easter sermons get graphic. They go very much in depth into the suffering and the punishment of Jesus on the cross. This message isn't going to go there. Because I believe that this is all about our Lord and Savior Jesus' triumph over death on the cross. This is a triumphal moment. He endured suffering. He endured pain. Yes, absolutely. But it is his triumph over those things that we celebrate here today on Resurrection Sunday. Now, quickly part of the story, Joseph of Arimathea asks Pilate, For the body of Jesus, who had just died on the cross, he wraps it in clean linen and he places the body in a tomb. Then a large rock is rolled into place over the opening of the tomb. Picture this, they would make a a, a large rock. Tombs were carved into the face of a mountain, typically a cave. They would place this large rock, whether they carved it or it just happened to be there, essentially at the top of a dirt ramp. And once the person was entombed, they would then roll that rock downhill. So it was virtually impossible to get it back open and to get it back out of the way. It had gravity holding it in place. We see that's what's happening. But this alone isn't good enough for the chief priest. The chief priest worries. Matthew 27, verses 62 to 66. Follow along with me at home if you have your Bibles. Now, on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priest said to the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, the deceiver said, that's Jesus he's talking about, after three days I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. And the last deception will be far worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go, make it secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. We have an image there of the tomb. This is is historically what this would have looked like. Placed a couple guards outside the tomb. They would have had a chain across the rock. The rock was hard enough to move, but they would have chained it. They would have locked it and put a seal on the lock. 
so it could not be broken. The guards, by the way, were put there under penalty of death. If their charge escaped, they would be put to death. They were taking this seriously. But chains, death in the tomb, could not hold him. Luke 24, 1 through 7. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee. This is the angels reminding them of this. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. The very next verse is Luke 24, 8. We have that on screen. Very simple verse. And they remembered his words. This had to be that facepalm moment for the disciples, right? Had to be that moment where all of a sudden, all these things that Jesus said while he was with them started coming together. The words of the prophet, of the prophets of old, fulfilled one by one by one in Jesus Christ. I don't think they recognized the significance of that moment until they were reminded. And that's the day when their hope and our hope truly came to life. So when we take communion in remembrance of him, this is what we should recall. We recall this. Not his death on the cross alone, although that's significant, it's so much more than that. It's the life that he sacrificed for us so that our hope, and what's our hope? Our hope is all the promises of scripture could be fulfilled through his sacrifice. The price of our sin was extracted from his innocent flesh, just like the innocent Passover lamb, so that we can stand before the Father acquitted of all crimes against us, so that the blood of the sacrificial lamb, causing the very ink on the pages where the accuser had written charges against us to run right off the pages of the Lamb's book of life. And if that weren't enough of a slap in the face to Satan, Christ himself then escapes death and the tomb to take his rightful place at the, fa- at the right hand of the Father in heaven. It wasn't until after Jesus had gone that the fullness of all the fulfillment of prophecy had begun to sink in to even those who were closest to him. It wasn't until much later even, in fact, that Peter writes this. 1 Peter chapter 1 Uh, 18 to 20, says this, knowing, Peter says this, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. 
Now, earlier in the same chapter, Peter's praising God for the hope that he has, for the hope that is in him. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our living hope. So when we take communion together, we are celebrating our living hope. So we're going to now go into a time of taking communion together. If you have your elements, worship team, you guys can go ahead and start heading up. If you have your elements, grab them. So what exactly is communion? Communion is this. It's a recognition of the bodily sacrifice of Lord Jesus Christ. He willingly gave his life to pay the price for whoever believes in fulfillment of holy prophecy. Now, the particular elements themselves, whatever you're using at home, is not critical. It's the fact that as believers, we assemble together, even if it's virtually, we assemble to fellowship, to thankfully remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and to examine our own hearts. Now, this is the privilege that we get. Until we can gather together in person, let's join others worldwide in spirit. Now, before we actually take communion, the act of communion, I want to remind you that this invitation to communion, the invitation to share in the body and the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is open to anyone who will confess him as their Lord and Savior. And this invitation is open today, and it's open to you. And so if you have never said yes to Jesus Christ, if you ever never made him the Lord and Savior of your life, that invitation is for you today, right now. Jesus doesn't make it hard. He wants everyone to come to him. So he doesn't put barriers in the way. He doesn't put, once you get your act together, come see me and we'll talk. There's no application process. All you have to do is say yes. And so if you're at home right now, wherever you are watching this, listening to this, if you want to stop running, if you're tired of trying to do it on your own, if you want to partake in the blessings that Christ died to give you, he died to give that same blessing to those people who would refuse that blessing, but he did it anyway because he wants all to come to him. So if that's you and you're in this place, say this prayer or your own version of it with me. Father God, I repent of trying to do it on my own. I am tired of trying to live this life on my own, trying to live this life according to the wisdom of the world. And I find myself just going around and around in circles, doing the same things the same way and not finding the peace and the blessing that comes from knowing the Lord Jesus. And so God, I want that today. Today, right now, I confess that I don't have what it takes to navigate this life. I need a Savior. I need Jesus. 
And so, Father, I invite Jesus into my heart right now. I willingly lay down all that I am, all that I have, all that I ever thought I was in my identity, and I exchange that for who Christ says I am. Because he says, I am pure. He says, I am sinless. He says, I am worthy. And that's what I believe because Jesus gave everything to give that to me. So I confess right now here today, Jesus Christ, you are my Lord and Savior. And it's in your holy name that I pray. Amen. So take your communion elements. We're going to take this together. chapter 26 verse 26 it says while they were eating Jesus took some bread and after a blessing he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said take eat this is my body take the bread element the body of Jesus Christ the lion of Judah the lamb of God the king of kings broken and given as a sacrifice for you Book of Matthew goes on, verses 27 through 29. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom blood of Jesus, the light of the world, wonderful counselor, prince of peace, faithful and true, poured out in deliverance from the bondage of sin. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, there are no words that could begin to express our thankfulness for what you have done for us. Because of what you did. For those who know you and for those who don't know you, you died for everyone to give us all the opportunity to turn to you, to acknowledge you, and to be washed clean. Fellowship with the Father, eternal life, victory over sin. These are the things that you gave us but that pales in comparison with the showing of just your love, how much you love us. We could never do anything worthy of the love that you show us. So Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. And we acknowledge your power and your might and your grace and your mercy and your triumph over the grave. And it's that that we celebrate here today. We pray that in your holy name. Amen. Church, wherever you are, let's give a shout of triumph. He is not here. He is risen.
Thank you, church. Enjoy some worship. God bless you.